Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, February 9th. It is 10.30 a.m., and it is time for Bible study. We are back in the book of Revelation. Today, we are looking at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the first uh, uh, first two parts of that. So there's it's broken into four sections, and we're going to look at the first two and uh, a couple letters to different churches. So lots of good stuff today. Hope you're doing well and glad you're making this part of your day as we journey through the book of Revelation together. If you have questions, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you have to say and let me know what you think. Uh, the book of Revelation is, it's it's the book of Revelation. There's lots of stuff in here that isn't simple to understand, but as we go through it line by line, I hope it makes more sense for you. So let's jump right in. Revelation chapter 2. Part one, we are looking at a message to Ephesus, a message to Ephesus. So verses one, uh, one and two to the angel of the Lord in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers and have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them to be false. Okay, so the message starts to the angel in Ephesus. Uh, we talked about this last week. The angel could be, there could be an angel for the church. It could also mean basically to the pastor, to the leader, to the one who is in charge. Uh, uh, that, could, that could be who this is addressed to. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I know what you're up to. I can see you. I know you're doing good things. I know your toil, your works, and your patient endurance. I know the ways in which you struggle. I know the ways in which you endure and remain patient. I know the difficult things you're going through. Uh, and I'm with you. And I'm with you. Now, the, the, the church in Ephesus is an interesting church. Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world. And it had an equally famous church. The, the, the people who ministered there are... Uh, an all-star team, you could say. The greatest pastors ever. You had Paul was there. Aquila and Priscilla. You had Apollos. You had Timothy. And according to tradition, John himself even ministered there. Uh, when you think about th throughout history, there's no church who could say they've had a better, a better collection of pastors, right? So, so uh, John is writing this letter. Jesus through John, is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus and says, I know how hard you worked, and I know how you've endured. You've patiently endured. And so you think about the church there, patiently endured. They endured persecution. They endured all kinds of things, especially being being a new church and having to go up against the Jewish people and the Romans. That, uh, but think, what what is the church called to patiently endure today? What are we called to patiently endure? Endure. Throughout all of history, the church has been called to patiently endure. What are we called to patiently endure today? Obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is COVID, right? The whole world is called to patiently endure COVID. But what other things? Throughout all of history, the church has been called to patiently endure lots of things. Uh, and there's, there are still persecutions that happen all over the world, all the time. Someone said that uh, every 10 minutes, someone dies around the world for their Christian faith. Still, so we are called to patiently endure. The way that the church exists in America is not the way that the church exists all around the world, and we need to be aware of that. 
And we need to recognize how lucky we are to live here and to, to share our faith here and think about those overseas. And, and can we, how, how can we pray for them? And how can we make sure that we're supporting them to the best of our ability? Um, so, yeah, they're, they're works and they're patiently enduring. Verse 4, Jesus' tone changes a little bit. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Re, uh, remember then from when you had, from what, you, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay. All right. This is some big stuff here. All right. You've been really good at doing your works. You've been good at patiently enduring. However. You have stopped loving the way you once did. You don't love the way you once loved. Is it their love for God or their love for one another? We don't know. But can you abandon love for God and not abandon love for another? Can you abandon love for another and not abandon love for God? They're they're tied together. So uh, they abandoned their love. They were so focused on their works that they got lost and forgot about loving. And the church, if nothing else, is a place that should be known for its love, right? And they had abandoned that love. They had stopped loving, even though at the beginning they were doing a really good job of loving, right? And so, uh, you know, how do we keep love for God and others first and foremost when when we start to formalize and, and organize and uh, get worried about uh, doctrine and get worried about uh, uh, all the works that we're called to do as a church, you know, love is put on the back burner and other things become more important. But, but Jesus says, do not forget love. Love is the most important thing for the church. And so remember where you used to be, it says. Remember what you used to do. Remember how you used to love one another. Remember back then, the first step in recognizing a problem is remember the way it used to be before the problem existed, right? Remember what life was like when you were doing it right. Remember the joy you had when you were first getting started as a church. Do that again. Do that again. This speaks loudly to me because as Abiding Grace, I've been here now 11 and a half years and how we've changed over the course of time and how excited we all were at the very beginning when we were first getting started and how, how we loved what we were doing. Uh, and then we started to organize and formalize and you know we had constitutions to write and all these things. And it just made, uh, uh, I'm not going to say we don't love one another, we don't love God, but uh, we don't certainly love the idea of what we're doing as much as we did 11 and a half years ago. And so how can we reclaim that? How can we get back to doing that? Uh, it's an important piece of scripture. Do not abandon love. Do not abandon love. Okay, now we get to something that can be troubling. Jesus gives them a warning. Unless you change, unless you get back to loving the way you once loved, he will remove their lampstand. He will remove their he will remove their stand. The stand is where the candle goes, right? That represents the presence of Christ. And if you don't have the lampstand, you don't have the candle. You don't have the presence of Christ. So, if Jesus is going to remove their lampstand, is he going to take his presence away from the church? 
That's a big threat. That's a big warning. Get it right or I'm leaving. You will no longer have my presence. Can a church lose the presence of Christ? Well, I don't know, but I, can, I do know a church can lose its sense of mission. A church can lose its sense of why it is there to begin with. And so it's an important, uh, important reminder to keep love first and to share that love with the community and to share it with one another and to always, always, always be loving God. Uh, and so love first, first and foremost. But verse six, this is interesting. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, you're doing stuff really well, right? You're toiling, you're enduring patiently. I really don't like the way you've stopped loving one another, but I love the way you're hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so you got a compliment, uh, a bad a bad remark, and then a compliment again. You, sam- you sandwich in uh, your, your negative with two positives, right? I love the way you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans because I hate them too. They're deeds, not them. Never says here that there's any hatred towards any specific person, but the deeds. I hate, I hate the deeds. So who were the Nicolaitans? According to Irenaeus, writing in the late second century, this is what he wrote. The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas. That Nicholas. My name is Nicholas. I think I'm going to make business cards that say that Nicholas. That Nicholas who was one of the first uh, seven first ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. Daily lives of unrestrained indulgence. They practice adultery and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul wrote about things sacrificed to idols, so that may not be the big issue, but they practice adultery. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. I was really excited reading the book of Acts when, when my, I found my name, Nicholas. Nicholas is in the book of Acts. He was ordained to the diaconate by the apostles. He became a leader in the early church. And I thought, yay, there's my name, Nicholas. And then I find out that he leads his people, his followers astray. And we are to hate the works of Nicholas. So this is not, I need to say it loud and clear so everybody hears this. This is not me. John is not writing about me. I was not alive 2,000 years ago. I need to say that loud and clear. Okay. Whoever they were and whatever they were doing, we learn that Jesus hated their sin. Jesus hated their sin and wanted his people to also hate their sin, to also hate sin, to also hate sin. Uh, We are called to hate sin and not the sinner. Do we spend enough time hating sin? Do we spend enough time speaking out against sin? And saying, listen, I'm not judging you. I'm not telling you that Jesus hates you. But I can say that Jesus hates what you're doing. That Jesus hates what you're doing. The church has a responsibility to say, Jesus is not happy with what you're doing. Jesus hates what you're doing. And we too do not like what you're doing. It's an important piece, I think, that we've lost. Okay, verse 7. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So 
we're going to find that in these messages, this becomes like a formula. At the end of each message to each church, it says, anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. So that means that these are not just written for those churches 2,000 years ago. They're written for everybody who is listening or reading this. Anyone who has an ear or anyone who has eyes and is reading this, understand that this is written to the entire church, to all Christians, and to listen to what the Spirit is saying. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. The second part of that. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is the paradise of God. To everyone who conquers. Conquers what? To everyone who conquers what? In the context of this message, what are the thing, what's the one thing they needed to conquer? They needed to overcome their apathy, to overcome their, their hearts that no longer loved. To anyone who overcomes apathy, to anyone who learns how to love, remembers how to love, goes back to loving, well, the promise is a return to Eden, the restoration of the way that God intended the relationship for uh, humanity and God, right? Uh, you will eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. It's eternal life. It's heaven, right? Overcome apathy. Conquer apathy. Remember to love. Remember to love. The church is called to and always will be called to love. So conquer apathy. All right. Now we get to the message to Smyrna. All right. You ready for this? Here we go. Verse 9. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander of the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Smyrna was a large, beautiful, wealthy city, right? And it was a city known for its worship of, of, of Roman gods and Roman idolatry. Uh, there were statues built to the goddess of Rome. There was statue built uh, to, to emperors there. And, and in, in this city of wealth, the Christians were very poor. They were very poor because uh, they were robbed and fired from their jobs and persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And we see this in Hebrews 10, verse 34. You cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourself possessed something better and more lasting. And so they didn't have anything. And yet Jesus says, but I know that you are rich. I know that you are rich. Even though you've, you've, uh, you, you know abuse, you, you know what it's like to have things taken from you. You know what it's like to lose your job for the sake of your faith. You know what it's like. I, I know what you've endured at the hands of religious people who claim to be Jews, but, but aren't, excuse me, every outward um, Appearance says that you are poor, but I say you are rich, but I say you are rich. Why could, how can Jesus say that those who are that poor are rich? Well, clearly what he's saying is that worldly poverty and riches are not an indicator of spiritual poverty and riches, right? I mean, there are people out there today who want to tell you that if you are wealthy, it is because God has blessed you and because you are spiritually wealthy. But here Jesus says, I know you have nothing. I know you are poor, but I say to you, you are rich. So worldly riches has nothing to do with spiritual wealth. So we ask, what is our, how do we determine if somebody has worldly riches? Well, their bank account, right? Right their bank account, maybe their, their uh, 
their pay stub, the places they live, right? That has nothing to do with Jesus's determining whether we are spiritually wealthy or not. Where does that come from? What does Jesus look at? What does Jesus look at to determine our spiritual wealth? Well, I would say Jesus looks at our faith. Jesus looks at the ways in which we love one another. Jesus looks at the ways in which we are obedient uh, to, to the way we live out our faith. Uh, Jesus also looks to the ways in which we have been shown grace. And so Jesus sees us through the lens of the cross, knowing that his death for us makes us something new and says, well, you're, you're much wealthier than you could ever imagine because of what I've done for you. And now I, I can see that the, the faith and trust that you have in me is leading you through life, right? And that's, to me, that's spiritual, spiritual wealth. Okay, now we get another troubling verse. Verse 10, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have affliction. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. There's verse 10 and 11. Do not be afraid because the devil's about to throw some of you into jail for 10 days. Stay faithful. The normal reaction here is if Jesus knows that persecution is about to come from the devil, if Jesus knows that there's an attack that's going to come from the devil, Jesus knows it's coming and that they're going to be thrown in jail for 10 days, why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't Jesus stop Satan from throwing these Christians in jail? Right? There's, why doesn't Jesus stop fill in the blank? Why doesn't Jesus, if Jesus knows it's coming, why doesn't Jesus stop it? If Jesus knew a pandemic was coming, why didn't Jesus stop it? Does God have a purpose behind our suffering? Does God work with Satan in the way that we see in the book of Job, right? Where Satan is on the heavenly council and Satan is doing all these things to the world to test our faith. Why doesn't Jesus just stop it from happening? Why doesn't Jesus protect us from suffering? I don't know. Does Satan truly work alongside God, right? Satan, uh, Satan works with God's uh, authorization, right? God says, go ahead, do what you're going to do. Limits it, right? It's limited. You can only put him in jail for 10 days. You can only do so much to Job. Uh, but, and then Satan, Satan does what Satan does. Satan is referred to as the prince of this world, the ruler of the, the, the ruler of the air, right? Why? If Jesus knows what's going to happen, if Jesus knows what Satan's going to do, why doesn't Jesus stop it? What does that say about God's control? What does that say about uh, God's providence? What does it say to you? What does it say? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what I think is clear is that God allows things to happen, but God doesn't make them happen. God doesn't send people to prison. God allows them to be sent to prison. God, God allows a pandemic. God doesn't create and send the pandemic, but God is with us in the midst of all of it. And the other parts are just the things that happen in a broken, sinful world. And so you see the work of Satan among us doing things that we, 
would prefer weren't done, but we as people of faith remain faithful, believe that God is with us, giving us the strength that we need to get through each day, that we have faith and that we trust in God. Are we all being tested? Yes, each and every day. Is it God who's doing the testing? I don't think so. I think God has seen everything God needs to see for us and through us and in us. Uh, Interesting, though. Okay. Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say to the Christians in Smyrna. All he had to say to them was that they were doing good work, and then he offers them the crown of life. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life, right? The crown of life. The Greeks had two words for a crown. One was a crown for royalty, and one was a crown for uh, the winner in an athletic competition, right? Like winning an Olympic event, you would get the crown. This crown is called Stephanos. Jesus said to them, you will get the crown of life, the Stephanos of life. You are my winners. You have endured. You deserve a crown. I'm giving you this crown uh, because you have endured uh, and you've been faithful until death. And it said, the, let, let everyone who has ears listen and whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. What does that mean? What does that mean, the second death? The second death, according to William Barclay, was a Jewish rabbinic expression for the total extinction, extinction of the utterly wicked. Later on in Revelation, it will say they will be cast into the lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. Extinction, total extinction. They're gone, never to exist. Uh, But those who conquer persecution will not be harmed by the second death, for they will live eternally in God's kingdom, in God's paradise, and will never have to worry about the second death. So the first death is, well, in this line of thinking, the first death is, the, the, the human death, but there is no second death for the people of God. Now, the, we have extrapolated on that, and some people argue there's three deaths, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, there you go. That's Revelation 2, part one, a letter to uh, Ephesus and a letter to uh, Smyrna, and next week we will finish with a letter to uh, Pergamum and uh, Thyatira. So thank you so much for joining me through Revelation chapter 2, part one. Hope you have a wonderful week and take great care of yourselves and let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us, that you have loved us and claimed us. We thank you that you have brought us to a place, to a community, to a church. Uh, Be with all our churches. Help them to be places of love. Help them to be places where uh, we have a love for you and love for one another uh, and and that we together uh, figure out how to endure difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, take good care of yourselves, and we will see you next week.